morning, everyone. <laughs> Great to see you all here this morning. Um, and welcome to everyone online as well. Today we'll be exploring 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1 to 12, which I really am delighted to be sharing about. Um, it's a really precious passage to me. Um, because it's one of the last passages I ever spoke about with uh, an absolute hero in my life. My granddad was born in Belfast in 1925. In 1947, he, at the age of 22, and two friends went off to India as missionaries. Their purpose was to plant churches in the cities of Calcutta and New Delhi, where more educated middle-class converts to Christianity could ultimately pick up the leadership of these local churches, rather than just perpetuating having missionary leaders. My granddad's life had a profound and radical impact in India and Pakistan, where he traveled extensively and spoke the Bible in both Urdu and Hindi. He traveled telling them the good news. Christ came for you. Here, my gran in total spent 40 years as missionaries in India. So I'm only 45, so that was a lot of my life. They established the Delhi Bible Institute and a missionary kids' school in a place called Utikamund, where my dad, who is sitting at the back there, went to school. I owe much of the shaping of the way I've thought about my life, my spirituality, and my commitment to missions to them and the heritage they passed down to my dad, who brought us out from England to South Africa as missionaries in the mid-80s. In my granddad's 80s, he began suffering from dementia. And when I last saw him in 2009, a year before he passed away, it was severe. His body had been whittled away by dementia, and his life was now seen through what appeared to be a lens of vulnerability and confusion. Nonetheless, I'd been asked to speak at a church in England, and so knowing how much my granddad loved to preach, I was telling him that I was preparing to preach on this particular Sunday from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1 to 12. And knowing how much he loved the Bible, I began reading the chapter to him. Therefore, and if you just want to pop it up for those who don't have Bibles, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then, out of nowhere, 
this influential yet vulnerable, confused missionary man, the man who had evangelized and traveled in India across his whole life, but now got lost in his own home, took over from me and word for word with absolute clarity, for the Bible was etched into his long-term memory, boomed loudly, clearly, and articulately. For we do not preach what is ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. He went on, continuing from memory. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from ourselves. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Christ, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then, death is at work in us, but life is also at work in us. What a profound passage it is. And what a privilege it is this morning to explore it a little bit. So it starts out with this verse, Therefore, through God's mercy, we have this ministry and we don't lose heart. Now, I think James said it last week, whenever we start a passage with the word therefore, we need to ask ourselves the question, what is it therefore? And, you know, what it's there for, in order to understand this, we actually have to backtrack a little bit before we go forward. So I'll start by reminding you that this is a letter written in response to something. So from our perspectives, for all intents and purposes, what we read in the letters to the Church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Acacia, is essentially like reading a one-sided conversation between Paul and the church. And we don't have the other side of the conversation. And that sometimes makes making sense out of what is being said quite challenging. Because we don't fully know whether Paul is responding to comments he got from specific questions that have been asked, maybe in one of the other letters that he'd received from the Romans, or maybe he's responding to a comment that Titus made, because remember Titus had been sent to Corinth with a very stern letter that preceded this particular letter. And so maybe Paul and Titus had met up later on for Paul to hear how was this message received. And maybe Titus, in his explanation of how it was received, had said something that had stuck in Paul's memory. And that is what made Paul write down what he wrote down. Anyway, 
All that to say, what's really important is that this is a letter. And a letter can sometimes be a little bit like overhearing a one-sided telephone conversation. I don't know if any of you like to listen in on other people's conversations, but I'm a keen people observer, so I'm not going to say that I, uh, I don't enjoy it. But the bottom line is we lack the full context. And for me, personally, I think I say it every week at work, context is king. I mean, I struggle to assimilate bits and bobs of information, even questions that are directly posed to me if I don't understand the context from which the person is asking the question. But what we do have is we do have enough from Paul's side to kind of get an idea of what was going on in the church, and we also have a historical context that we can work with. So let's just put a little bit of context around this passage before we get into it. In Acts 9, we read for the first time about Saul's radical conversion. It was a radical encounter with, not surprisingly, a light. A light that flashed from heaven all around him and made him so terrified and actually blinded him. He couldn't see anything for three days until God sent Ananias, who initially did not want to go to Paul because, as you all know, Paul was a massive persecutor of the church originally. But Ananias went and he said, laying his hands on Paul, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me to you that you may see again. After this, Paul was consumed with boldness from the Holy Spirit. And the rest of his life was about teaching one message and one message alone. Now, Paul was well, well versed in the Old Testament. He was the Jew of all Jews. And he knew that what had happened in his radical conversion was that the old covenant, which he refers to as a ministry of death, a veiled covenant, had now been superseded by a new covenant. It had been fulfilled by a new covenant, a ministry of life, a ministry of light, an unveiled covenant. And he was now a witness to this one message, which he spoke for the first time in Antioch. And we read about that in Acts 13. But in verse 38, the simple message is declared. And this is the message that Paul lived and ultimately died by. That through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And through him, everyone who believes is justified. Everything that they could not previously be justified from by the law of Moses, they were now justified by Jesus' blood. And this message applied to everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike. The message of the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
Now, you've got to understand, this message was utterly countercultural. It was completely counterintuitive, especially in the order of the day. The Jews had spent centuries believing that they were God's chosen people. They had been promised a promised land. And much of history, they had been in captivity. But eventually, when God had led them out of Egypt and overthrown seven nations in Canaan, they were given the promised land as their inheritance. But this took 450 years of them holding to the law of Moses, etched and engraved on tablets of stone. God then gave the Jews the judges, he gave them the prophets, and then he gave them the kings to guide them in the way of the old covenant, to guide them as to how to observe the law of Moses. So you can only imagine this once orthodox Jew getting up and proclaiming that all of a sudden that old covenant is a ministry of death. Because a new covenant has come. And that new covenant is a ministry of life. And it's a ministry of life that lavishes grace and love upon all Jews and Gentiles alike. I mean, the calibration that had to go on in the minds of the people of the time, both at a cultural level, both at an emotional level, at a spiritual level, What had happened here? I mean, they didn't understand necessarily the prophecies that Jesus was going to fulfill. They were even unsure as to whether Jesus was the Messiah that they were waiting for. And yet God's grand plan all along was not just for the Jews, but it was for all people. And with the birth of Jesus into the world, with his death and his resurrection, The old covenant was fulfilled. It was gone. And now a liberating message of the new covenant was at work. And it was an unveiled message that shone life and light everywhere it went in its pure form. The new covenant was radically inclusive. There were no longer insiders and outsiders. The light had come to transform the lives of the Jews and the Gentiles alike. The gift of salvation now belonged to everyone. It was socially transformative. It was profoundly disruptive, especially for the legalistic and orthodox Jew who had diligently observed the law of Moses. Many of them couldn't make any sense of it and questioned it. What, huh? God is now accessible to the Gentiles? The bedraggled, the beat up, the burnt out, prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors. Those guys didn't follow the letter of the law. How now is it possible that this new covenant is extended from us to them. It flew in the face of everything they knew. 
and everything they had given their lives to working so diligently for. And now all of a sudden, this new covenant invited everyone to be reconciled with their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there was great controversy going on in the church and in the early church all over the book of Acts through uh, the letters, through Colossians, through Galatians, through Corinthians. The controversy kept poking its head up. The Jewish legalists criticized the simple gospel of pure undeserved love made manifest in and through Christ Jesus. What Paul was preaching was scandalous. And the Jewish legalists had subtly infiltrated the church, and particularly the church in Corinth. They subtly changed the truth. They said, okay, okay, okay. Accept salvation of Jesus, but also be circumcised. And also obey the law of Moses. So it was like Jesus and, 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 and. And, I mean, Paul's explicit in Galatians. He says, you know, anything taught with Jesus and is no gospel at all. It's not good news. It's just putting a yoke on people's lives. And actually, Jesus came to say, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me, you who are weary-hearted. So the problem was that there was this false message distorting and deceiving the church itself, that in some way salvation was still bound to old covenant thinking. And Paul was not afraid to call it out. He said at the end of Corinthians 2 Corinthians 3, and James spoke about this last week, God has made me a minister of the new covenant Not of the letter of the law, but of the spirit, for the law kills and the spirit brings life. So therefore, having now established that the one and only truth that should be being taught is the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ... That is the truth that should be taught, and that is the only truth. And the truth of that is that his grace extends to all people so that he might reconcile all back to himself through the free gift of salvation. Therefore, and if we go back to 2 Corinthians, therefore, through God's mercy, we have this ministry. Have we now established what this ministry is? It's just the simple, unadulterated ministry of the radical, profound grace of God poured out over all people. Therefore, we do not lose heart. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception or distort the word of God like you might have been hearing the legalists who are infiltrating the church. In fact, on the contrary, we set forth the truth very plainly, and we commend it to ourselves and to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 
And even if our gospel is veiled then, the truth, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Because the God of this age, day and age where Paul was, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light and life of the gospel that is displayed in the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The new covenant was simple. It was that simple. Christ died for our sins. He was crucified. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to Scripture, according to the old covenant, the Old Testament, according to what the prophets had prophesied many a time. And this happened so that all people could be reconciled to God and receive the free gift of salvation. For through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved just as we are. This powerful invitation was the message that Paul lived and died by from the moment of his conversion until the moment of his death. You know, Paul didn't walk through the town and say, where's the fanciest hotel? He said, where's the local jail? Because I know that's where I'm going. Because this message is so unacceptable to so many people. Because you know what? We love our little inside groups that keep us safe. And if we can have an other, then we can just project all of our own stuff onto that other This powerful invitation of Jesus is for the sorely burdened, the wobbly, the weak-kneed, who know they don't have it all together. It's for the inconsistent. It's for the unsteady. It's for people whose legs are weak under them. It's for the poor. It's for the vulnerable. It's for sinful men and women with hereditary faults and limited talents. It's for earthen vessels who shuffle along with feet like clay, knowing that they are scallywags. Can we even accept that this message extends that far? You know, I would say I spent a lot of my life trying to be a good Christian. What does it even mean? It's absurd. It's not aligned. It's a distortion of the truth. There is no such thing. Your being saved is not dependent on you. It is dependent on you opening your arms to receive the grace of God made manifest in the image of Jesus Christ looking at us from the cross saying, your sins are forgiven. No spiritual cosmetics are required. Sure, I feel like I'm preaching in a, in a serious church here. I love it. <laughs> I said to Alex this morning, come hear me preach. He said, Mom, I don't need to hear you preach. I hear you preach every day. <laughs> you know, if we can't accept that it's Jesus and grace and nothing more, then we too are blinded by the God of this age. 
because there's still an insidious working going on that confuses and convinces us that there must surely be more that I need to do. Now, I just want to speak to this issue of blindness because Paul says that the God of the age has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers. And I want to be very clear that what Paul is not referring to is some underground covert operation where the God who made his image known and manifest in the face of Jesus on the cross is looking down from some pivot Looking down saying, okay, you can see. No, sorry, you can't see. You can see. No, you're going to be blind. No, you can see. You're going to be blind. No, not at all. Okay? That flies absolutely incongruent to the nature and the character of who God really is. There are four instances in the Bible, and I've read them all over the course of this week, where God actually inflicted blindness. Two of them are in relation to armies, and two of them are in relation to people. In all four instances, there was temporary blindness given for permanent illumination. So in each instance, God restores sight. That is what God is about. So the blindness Paul's referring to is a blindness that came from being led astray from the simple message of grace. Or it was a blindness that was the result of becoming so enamored with the pleasure of sin that darkness sucked people into, their, into its lair. And you, we all know that how that feels in our own lives. It's not like we're sitting here sinless and spotless. You know, we do become enamored by the idea that we can kind of do one-upmanship. We can be better than the next. We can have more prestige. So any which way we look at it, the blindness that Paul is referring to, given from the God of God, lowercase g, of this age, is about deception and distortion, ultimately so that distraction takes place, distraction from the truth of the simplicity of God's abandoned love for us. How often are we distracted from this truth? You know, go to... I'm a pastor's kid. Read your Bible, pray every day. It's not that it isn't true, but my salvation is not contingent on that. My salvation is contingent on saying, I am a sinful person. God, I need your grace. You know, and then what do we do in response to that grace? I mean, if you've been given this free gift, as if you'd want to do much more than unpack it and understand it and admire the beauty of it because it is so counterintuitive, countercultural, counter everything that we've been brought up with. 
you know, there's subtle and devastating effects that are going on in our culture and in the church where blindness is coming into play. We like to keep to our own. It's a subtle form of racism. You know, they're over there, we're over here. Let's just stay in our little light bubble. We'll reach out occasionally, but we like control because, you know, can we really trust God? We love excess because is God's abundance actually going to cover us? Oh, we love scapegoating and projecting our own frustrations and evils elsewhere. We belong to a system that I see at work that is still steeped in self-confidence, self-righteousness. There's a, still an agenda that's being permeated through our culture and society that marginalizes the vulnerable, that marginalizes women oh so subtly in the name of preserving the status quo. We don't like to be overly vulnerable. We hide in our armadillo shells, thick and hard-skinned. We don't want to appear needy. We don't want to become anything but self-reliant. I am just observing patterns. I'm not putting judgment on them because I get as easily sucked into these things. And I humbly acknowledge that to you today. But the thing is that what is consistent and congruent with the nature and character of God is that it is and has always been his greatest joy, his most beautiful dream to bring everyone to himself. All are invited to the banquet table. Everyone. No one is excluded. He has a radical, unabandoned love for humanity that was made manifest in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. For Jesus is the light of the world. Isaiah 9. Actually, you know, this, the, I've carried this Bible around with me since 1993. So it's really beautiful sometimes to go back to portions of Scripture and to see when I actually highlighted them, because occasionally I wrote dates. So I, I highlighted this in 1998. It's about the light. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. This is Isaiah for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, Jewish lands. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond Jordan. It was always there. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's always been. His one grand adventure was to bring all creation and all people back home into his heart. He breathed that first breath of life into your being. It is there, and he's just waiting for you to say, fill me more with your illuminating light, Jesus, so that I might be a light to the nations, like this light that was prophesied about. 
Dan and I were chatting yesterday, and we were just chatting about how difficult sometimes it is to be acknowledged that we are bathed in grace, that we are lavished in the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in Christ's face. I mean, him and I were talking about how we do live in a society where we are raised in a punishment-reward culture, and that transfers itself into the church. We live, I think, kind of in a grace meritocracy. Maybe another way of putting it is that we are practically born into a merit system. And so surely how can grace also not work on that same merit system? Because that's how our entire worldview is shaped. So I told him the story um, of the landowner from Matthew 20, who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard, and he agreed on a set wage, a denarius, which, by the way, is 13 rand 50 <laughs> for a whole day of working in the vineyards. Within our context, it probably arranges between somewhere in 250, between 250 and 700 rand for the day. But let's just imagine, because I'm not great with numbers, that the agreed wage is just a good old round 500 rand for the day. Anyway, the landowner sent those guys into the vineyard. The first set came at nine. He went and got another set at 12, another set at three, another set at five. And then when it came to evening time, they all received the same, the same pay. Now, bear in mind, this is a parable that Jesus told in Matthew 20. So they all received the same pay. And they began to grumble against the landowner. Ugh, those who were hired last. You made them only work one hour. And you've made them equal to us, who bore the brunt of the midday sun and the heat of the day. I hope you crash your car and it costs every bit of cent that you got overpaid on your way home. Take your pay and go, said the vineyard owner. I'm not being unfair to you, friend. You agreed to work for 500 rounds. I wanted to give the one I hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do that because it's my money? Or are you envious? because I am generous. And Jesus ends that by saying, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And Dan immediately said to me, oh, uh, I, I can kind of get it why they would be so annoyed that they got paid the same, regardless of the amount of hours they worked. I mean, you know, it is a bit unfair and then him and I got into chatting about, well, like, this is how radical grace is. Because unless we actually grasp the fact that God will not withhold when he is a generous God, and it is all his to give anyway, we miss the point of grace. And so we're living in an illusion if we think that what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, isn't as scandalous now as it was back then. You know, the God of our age has blinded us to plenty of things as well. And 
means we must not deceive or distort the word of God that is set out plainly. We have to renounce our secret and shameful ways of thinking. The light of the gospel displayed in the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, challenges us to a countercultural, counterintuitive way of thinking that requires a radical reworking of how we think about ourselves and others. There are no insiders and outsides, outsiders. There, are no, there is no one excluded. So what we preach is not ourselves because we get it messed up. It is Jesus Christ and him as our servants. For God said, let light shine in the darkness. And he made that light shine in our hearts. That's a reference to Genesis. I mean, in creation, God said these very words. So when he says to you, I'm shining my light into your darkness, whoo, you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. The thing with light is it always exposes shadows. I mean, we want to be rewarded where reward is due. And we feel like people should be punished where punishment is due. I honestly, I'm quite uncomfortable if I've done something really, like, not cool, to even think about myself getting grace. Like, oh, it makes my skin crawl. Don't give me grace now. Like, I don't deserve that. Let alone to think that grace is not just extended to me, but it's extended in exactly the same way to the man or woman serving seven life sentences for the atrocities committed. Jeez. There's no deposit system on grace. Just like, take that in for a moment. Because this is about the veil being lifted. God loves us beyond worthiness and unworthiness. You guys have said me say this, and I probably say it every time I preach. He loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain. He loves you when your intellect denies it and your emotion refuses it and your whole being rejects it. He loves you right here, right now, without condition or reservation. He loves you just as you are, just as you walked in this morning. No spiritual cosmetics required. We can't experience the profound mystery of the radiance of his glory and grace in terms of a payment and performance system. It's just going to mess us up. It's going to deceive us. It's going to distort the truth. And it's actually going to leave us in darkness and lead us into deeper darkness. Because the reality is how ever would we comprehend what happened on the cross. The signature of Jesus on the cross was the ultimate expression of God's scandalous, unrelenting love for the world. Jesus did not deserve to die. He was without sin, and yet he died. 
with one purpose in mind. You. Your name was written in his heart. From the moment you were conceived, he whispered dreams into your life that he has for you. That you are precious beyond what you will ever know. And his grace is freely available. That's what having light shine in the darkness really means. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. What a collection of paradoxes Paul ends this chapter with, or this section with. You see, these are all mysteries that are larger than our human mind can grasp. And I think Paul was actually quite intentional in this. Because Jesus hung on the cross between paradox. The tensions of opposites. Born of a virgin. Living a life without sin, yet dying the death reserved for the worst sinner. Crucified between a good thief and a bad thief crowned with thorns, acclaimed king of the Jews, and yet rejected by his own, in total despair, and yet full of hope, completely abandoned, so that we could completely belong. So if this is where he was crucified, surely this is where we live our lives, between opposites and tensions between consistency and necessary contradiction, straddling multiple realities, order, chaos, order, chaos, order, disorder, chaos, reorder, birth, life, death, resurrection. It's the adventure of our lives that we circulate through over and over and over again. New life, more death, more resurrection. For most of us, our existence is the cruciform shape. It's not logical, but remember we already established that the gospel is counterintuitive. Two plus two does not equal four. And until we can let this go, we cannot embrace mystery. And if we cannot embrace mystery, we will not grow in our spirituality. Because most of us have learned the biggest lessons in our lives at the intersection of order and disorder, where God alone can make sense of the situation and where we must surrender to the inherent fragility of our existence. And that is why Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, the light of the knowledge of God's glory is displayed in the, in the face of Christ in us in jars of clay. Dust to dust. We live in bodies vulnerable to breakage, and yet it's a necessary breakage. Because the more we crack, the more the light that has been shone into our hearts 
is able to illuminate out. And that is what happened when my granddad took over with these verses etched in his memory. The illuminating light of the eternal presence of Christ in his life was brightening day by day because although his body, his jar of clay, was ultimately powerless and dying, he was dying to live, suffering to surrender, giving life away to keep it, letting it all go to being enlivened daily, entrapped in certain grace, engulfed in constant mercy. Seeing my granddad crumbling toward death in his disintegrating body is a visual reminder that from dust we were created and to dust we will return. And yet God has taken these fragile forms and he has lavished and encased the whole of who we are in his light and his love and his grace. And he engulfs us in this. And this mystery is so countercultural and so counterintuitive that we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his body, his life, his light may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, for all of us, death is at work in us. But boy, oh boy, is life and light at work in us as well. What a gift. What have we done to earn or deserve it? Nothing. Everything that we have has been made possible to us only because we have been given so much. Life itself, eyes to see, hands to touch, a mind to shape ideas, a heart to beat with love. Christ, I pray that your illuminating light and the simplicity of the message of your death and resurrection and of your constant grace and engulfing mercy would saturate and transform our lives It would set us aglow with peace, joy, boldness, and extravagant, furious love, working afresh in us that we might know what it means to have your light shine in our hearts and to live in the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Amen and amen.